0: A Christian woman from the Middle Ages, that's right, why not go to the Middle Ages for a quote to begin the sermon. A Christian woman from the Middle Ages, once observed, The devil invites men to the water of death, blinding them with the pleasures and conditions of the world. He catches them with the hook of pleasure under the pretense of good. I wonder if you've thought about temptation like that. I wonder if you have experienced temptation like that. Even perhaps in this past week, something looks good, appears to be good, and pleasing. And perhaps the devil is drawing you in, or the world is offering you its baubles. Was there a moment when an apparent pleasure was set before you, and you seized it, but found out that you were snared by it? That's been the experience of everyone here, everyone in This world how do we overcome such lures of the world and the flesh and the devil only by the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that's what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning from God's word from Genesis chapters 13 and 14 if you haven't done so already let me invite you to open your Bibles turn in them to Genesis chapters 13 and 14 we're going to start in Genesis chapter 13 if you're using one of the Bibles provided you can find the passage beginning on page 9. The chapters are the larger numbers there in the text, and the verses are the smaller numbers in the text. Now, we need to think about what has happened before we come to this text. Really, in the opening chapters of the Bible, we have learned that God created everything and everyone. He made the first man and the first woman. He set them in a beautiful garden. He gave them life, labor, and love in that garden. And yet, they were God's people living in God's place under God's perfect rule, as it's often been said. And they rebelled against him, they disobeyed against his command, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil sadly Adam and Eve threw away that place of bliss and blessing and yet, God in the face of that rebellion, he promised redemption, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 God promised that he would one day send the seed of a woman he would send a son, who would crush the head of the serpent, who would defeat sin and death and we are waiting, longing for that day God's Son would come and he would bring God's people back to God's place and bring them under God's rule. The rest of the book of Genesis is working out how God is going to keep that promise of sending a son and a seed. And so, in the course of the narrative so far, the focus of God's promises have really been narrowed into one man, onto one man and his family, Abram. In our last study, we, we saw in Genesis 12. God called Abram out of the world so that he might bless the world through Abram and his future offspring. God gave Abram precious promises. God would give him a people and a place. He promised that in Genesis 12. God would give him land and lineage. And Abram, he responded initially with trust and obedience. But then, like so many of us, when Abram was met with trial, he was met with a famine, he failed and fell short of the glory of God. He went down to Egypt trusting In them, rather than in God. He threw his wife into harm's way, tried to pass her off as his sister. He endangered the promises of God of a future offspring. Where Abram was faithless, God remained faithful. God plagued the house of Pharaoh, rescuing Sarah and Abram out of Egypt and giving them a bunch of treasure. They left carrying sheep and oxen and donkeys and servants and camels. Abram left Egypt with all of this, and that's where our text picks up. Do you see verse 1 of Genesis chapter 13? Read the first four verses there of Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. To the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now, all of this is important because the first audience of the book of Genesis, the people of Israel standing at Mount Sinai, hearing, listening to this book, would have remembered that Abram's experience was a lot like theirs. They had just come from Egypt after God had just plagued Pharaoh and his household, and after God had just given them a bunch of goods, they left with people and possessions. And they would have been eager to learn, okay, what does Abram do as he leaves Egypt? How does he follow God and go into the promised land? And here's what they would have learned from Genesis 13 and 14, the chapters that we're going to study together today. They would have learned from Abram's life that the Lord is the source of blessing, that the Lord is the possessor of heaven and earth. He can give anything he wants to them from anyone he wants to them. So they should look to the Lord and remain loyal to the Lord in faith. And think about what kind of God we're learning about here. I mean, what kind of God would be so kind and so loving and so generous as to turn the foolish and sinful decisions of Abram into bountiful blessing? The Lord is the kind of God who will not let his promises fail. He will not let his promises fail simply because his people fail. He's the kind of God who's worth looking to for failures like us. He's the kind of God who's worth leaning on and trusting in, and remaining loyal to, him, especially when the allurements of the world are so readily available to us. And don't you know, the allurements of the world are so readily available to you? I mean, haven't you experienced that this past week? In these two chapters, Abram, he's going to tussle with lot over land, And Abram is going to be tempted to give his loyalty to the king. Sodom and through it all the Lord is saying Abram I am your God look to me I am the possessor of heaven and earth I will keep my promises to bless you and to bless the world through you so remain loyal to me Abram in these chapters proves faithful unlike the last one he looks with eyes of faith he remains loyal to the Lord when tempted to give his loyalty away beloved here's the lesson that we're going to learn from these chapters. We need to look to the Lord Jesus in faith and remain loyal to him when the places, the peoples, and the powers of this world attempt to lure us away from the blessings of the kingdom of God. Here's the main idea of Genesis 13 and 14 in a single sentence. The Lord is the possessor of heaven and earth. So look to him and remain loyal to him. I'm going to pull that point out of uh, Genesis 14 especially verses 19 and 20 that the Lord is the possessor of heaven and earth that's what Moses is trying to say to his original audience but what does this mean for you it means this when the world attempts to lure you away and the world will attempt to lure you away when the world attempts to lure you away look to the Lord Jesus why do we sing turn your eyes upon Jesus we need to look to the Lord Jesus and remain loyal to him I want to show you this from our passage. So we're going to unpack Genesis 13 and 14 in two sections under two headings. Chapter 13, we're going to see, look to the Lord, and then chapter 14, we're going to see that we should remain loyal to the Lord. I believe there's a, a handout there in your in your bulletin that hope uh, I hope will help you follow along. Uh, let's consider our first one, look to the Lord. Here we're considering Genesis 13. Now we've already read the first four verses of the chapter. And what you need to notice from them is that Abram is weighed down with blessing. Do you see in verse 2? Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. Now, this, this is something of a comical line, I think, from Moses. Because those words, very rich, in the original language, convey the idea that Abram was very heavy with livestock and silver and gold. The Lord, through the Egyptians, has weighed Abram down with wealth. The Lord is the possessor of heaven and earth. And it's no problem for the Lord to use Egypt's wealth to enrich Abram. He owns it all, even the Egyptians' wealth. And through him, he can give it to Abram. That's just what he has done. And the interesting thing is, is that Abram went down to Egypt, we're told in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, because the famine was very severe. Or literally, the famine was very heavy in the land. So Abram's life was heavy with emptiness and famine, But now, he is heavy with wealth. Despite Abram's blunder, God remained true to his promises. He blessed him. And is it no wonder at the end of verse 4 that Abram called upon the name of the Lord? This calling upon the name of the Lord is a common biblical expression of faith. It's It's a way of saying that a person is depending upon, trusting in God. In light of God's kind deliverance from Egypt, in light of the heavy blessing that Abram has received, Despite his sinful decisions, Abram looks to the Lord in worship. Now, uh, we should not expect the Lord to bless our blunders quite like he does Abram's here. There's something that is unique that's going on with Abram in the redemptive purposes of God. Uh, Abram's offspring will be the line through which the Messiah will come. But what God is showing his people in his dealings with Abram is that he's a God who can be looked to in faith. When he says that he will bless, he will bless. And beloved, has not God richly blessed you in Jesus Christ? Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you given him your thanks for dealing so graciously with you in light of your sin? I mean, you've sinned, you've erred, and you've strayed, and yet God has saved you, he's kept you, he's protected you, and blessed you. Look to the Lord, the possessor of heaven and earth, and thank the Lord for his kindness toward you. The abundance of God's blessings become the cause of bickering between herdsmen, the herdsmen of Lot and Abram. Take a look at Genesis 13, verses 5 to 7. Read those verses now. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. God has richly blessed Abram. And he's also richly blessed Lot because, Abram's nephew, because of his connection to Abram. But the problem is that the land cannot support them. And there's strife between them. The animals are going to graze the ground with the dirt and the herdsmen are going to keep quarreling, probably over uh, wells and places of pasture. Added to this, Moses mentions at the end of verse seven. Do you see this here? That at that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And that comment probably underscores the need for peace. Um, apparently, Abram and Lot can dwell with the Canaanites and the Perizzites, but they can't dwell with one another. Tensions are running high. So, what will Abram do? Will he blunder again? like he did heading down to Egypt? Will he try to take control of the situation, to manage it, like he did trying to go down to Egypt? Will he try to secure God's promises of land himself and a land for his people? Well, look at what he does in verses 8 to 13. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were great, were, were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Well, Abram, we see here very magnanimously, leaves the decision to Lot. And I wonder if we can learn a little something from Father Abram here. I mean, can you, insofar as it depends upon you, seek to make peace with others by deferring to others? Be careful not to cling to your rights. I mean, sometimes it's right to defend your rights, but sometimes it's right to give up your rights. Abram, as the older relative, was entitled to the first choice, but he gave Lot the first choice, didn't he? Abram was looking to the Lord to secure his promises of land. I mean, he was offering as a potential reality that Lot could have the promised land, the land that the Lord promised to him in Genesis chapter 12. Abram's not saying, I'm going to take this land because I have to make sure this is all on me. No, he's leaving it to Lot and really to the Lord, isn't he? He wasn't angling to make sure he got his. He was deferring to Lot. Now, children and young people, I wonder if this is something that you can learn from Abram. Uh, When you and your siblings or your classmates or your teammates are bickering over something, can you defer to them? Can you consider others more important than yourself? Can you let go of the first choice or the first turn or the front seat in the car? Abram was willing to give Lot that choice. Abram deferred. Jesus did the same. Right? He gave up glory. And came to earth to serve us. He gave up his right, and he came down and served us rather than being served. I think we can learn something from Abram, especially from the Lord Jesus. As I said, Abram very magnanimously He leaves the decision a lot, and in doing so, we're, we're to understand that Abram's not trying to scheme and secure God's promises of the land all by himself. Abram's beginning to see with eyes of faith. He's beginning to see that the Lord is the possessor of heaven and earth. And that the Lord can sort out this situation. Uh, Lot might choose the land. That Yahweh promised. But Amor is trusting that. Even if that happens. The Lord will settle it and sort it out. Did you notice. How Lot saw. Did you notice how Moses characterized Lot's seeing. His choice in those verses. Look at verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. That the Jordan Valley was well watered. Everywhere. Like the garden of the Lord. So. So. Lot, he sees a land that's very reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. That's pretty good so far, right? Except, what's the next statement, the next qualifier? The land was like the land of Egypt. Now think about those who were first hearing this book. What would that have meant to them? They would have thought, actually, it's not such a good choice. Egypt's not a great place. It's a place of slavery. That's what they should have thought. "Don't, Don't choose Egypt. Don't choose a place like Egypt, Lot. But that's not the only qualifier. Do you see that parenthetical comment that Moses makes there in verse 10? This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, an astute reader and listener is going to hear that and say, Oh dear, God destroys places because of sin and wickedness. And That's confirmed in verse 13. Do you see verse 13? Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That word great is heavy. Again, that place is heavy with wickedness. Sodom was heavy with wickedness and sin, and God destroys places because of wickedness and sin. He did that with a flood, Genesis 6. He did that with Babel, Genesis 11. Lot's making a bad choice. He's seeing, but he's not seeing with eyes of faith, he's seeing with the eyes of flesh. He was looking on the surface, but not of the substance of that place for his choice. He's lo- looking really the way that Eve looked at that forbidden fruit. It was pleasing to the eye, remember? But it was bitter to the soul because it was pursuing wickedness and sin against the Lord. Beloved, we cannot just look with our physical eyes. We cannot just look at the surface of things. You're not just a material girl living in a material world. No, you have a soul. And it matters the decisions you make in this world for your soul. Even decision like moving. Beloved, you're you're allowed to move from place to place. You're allowed to move away from this place. But as you think about moving, like Lot was thinking about moving, ask yourself, will this move take me nearer to the Lord or further away from Him? Will this move help my faith to flourish or flounder? Am I certain that where I'm going, there is a church where I'm moving that will help me grow and prosper in the Lord? Should I move away from a church that is helping me grow and prosper in the Lord? It might be a physically well-watered place. It might have all of the physical amenities you desire. But will it be a spiritually well-watered place? Will your soul be able to drink deeply of the Lord? For Lot, his physical move was going to take him further away from the Lord. He was moving to the east. And in the Old Testament, whenever anyone goes east, they're almost always going away from the Lord. Right? That's the direction that Adam and Eve went when they left the garden. That's the direction that Cain went after he murdered his brother. That's the direction the people of the earth went when they built the Tower of Babel. Maybe you say, yeah, that's why I'm going to move west. Well, that's not precisely the point now, is it? No. The point is, is that we must look below the surface and we should think spiritually about our decisions and choices, whether that might be moving or employment, right? What kind of impact on your spiritual life might that job have? Could it mean more hours away from your family? Could it mean fewer hours to devote yourself to the service of Christ and his church? Could it bring you nearer to sins that you personally struggle with? Look not just at the surface, but look spiritually at the substance. Lot was looking with his flesh. He was seeing, but not really seeing, was he? Lot was looking with his flesh. Abram was looking to the Lord in faith. In fact, that's what the Lord calls Abram to do there in verses 14 to 18. Read those verses now. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for All the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord in these verses we're getting a repetition an expansion to some degree of the promises that God made to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 Lord he's repeating these promises here the call to look up is at bottom a call to look to the Lord in faith Lot looked up and saw something now the Lord wants Abram to look up and see something to see his word promise the Lord Yahweh had something greater in store for Abram Lot was going to live in a city but Abram was going to have a country as far as his eyes could see and God was going to give it give it to him. The Lord was determined. Do you see all those I will statements? Just whenever you read the Bible and you read the Lord saying I will, take those in. Drink deeply. of These are the Lord promising, determining that he's going to do something. Look at the middle of verse 15. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And then at the end of verse 17. I will give it to you. This is divine determination. Abram was seeing with eyes of faith, being invited to see with eyes of faith. And he did. The book of Hebrews tells us this. He didn't just believe that God was going to give him an earthly country. He believed that God would give him a heavenly country. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10. For Abram was looking forward to the city that's foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then six verses later, in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 16, the writer of the Hebrews tells us that Abram desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Now those who first read those words in verse 15, you see them? For all the land that you will see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. They should have lifted up their spiritual eyes to see that God's promise was not just a promise of a physical promised land, but also of a heavenly promised land. Abram, the writer of the Hebrews tells us that that's what Abram was believing in. Abram was trusting God for both a earthly and a heavenly promised land. But it was his hope of heaven that was leading him to look up to the Lord in faith. And beloved, we too must lift our eyes in faith. We too must look to the Lord and believe His promises that He will give us a heavenly promised land. Like Abram, we too are strangers and exiles, sojourners in this world. And while at times it feels like we're wandering on earth, the truth is that we're marching toward heaven. And Jesus, Jesus has promised we will enter that kingdom. He's told us that it's our Father's good pleasure. To give us the kingdom. He's told us that he goes before us to prepare a place for us. Christian, day by day, as you see others taking and accumulating the wealth of the world all around you. Remember that you hold the promised blessings of salvation and God's kingdom in your heart. All the stuff of this world with its choice lands and well-watered springs are to be enjoyed in God's providence. But they're also meant to cultivate a greater longing of living with Him in glory. And friend, if you're here and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then beware of gaining the whole world, but losing your soul. It's not worth the cost. Look up to the Lord. Look to the Lord who made heaven and earth, who made you the Lord. He wasn't just going to give Abram a country. He was also going to give him children. Did you see that? In verse 16, the Lord promised to make Abram's offspring as the dust of the earth. And the point, of course, is that you can't count the particles of dust on this earth. So you won't be able to count the number of Abram's children. The possessor of heaven and earth can give Abram progeny like the dust of the earth. Through these countless children, the Messiah will one day come. And in time, the Messiah will one day have countless children of Abram. Those who have faith like Abram, as Paul says in the book of Galatians. Worship the offspring of Abram, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the new heavens and the new earth. That heavenly country. Remember John's revelation? Well, actually, think about it next week a little bit. John chapter 7, verse 9. John looks around and he sees a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and the Lamb. That great multitude that no one could number gives God worship and praise honor and blessing and what do we see Abram doing here in verse 18 in response to God's great promises he builds an altar to the Lord why because he's going to worship the Lord one of the things we need to watch Abram do over and over again in these chapters is that he builds an altar or he worships the Lord he calls upon the name of the Lord he's a pilgrim who everywhere he goes is worshiping the Lord and building an altar and offering a sacrifice Abram is recognizing he's a sinner And that the Lord has dealt generously, graciously with him. Abram looked up and saw the land and the lineage the Lord would give him. And in response, he looked to the Lord in worship. God's grace, his lavish love, should lead us to worship and to look to him in faith. We should not only look to the Lord in faith, day by day, trusting in him to fulfill his promises. But we should also remain loyal to him. That's going to be the theme of chapter 14. So let's turn and consider our second point. Remain loyal to the Lord who possesses heaven and earth. Follow along as I read the first 12 verses of uh, Genesis chapter 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Ketelamur, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bershah, king of Gomorrah, Shinar, king of Adma, Shemabur, king of Zeboiim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidin, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketileomer, but in the thirteenth year, they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketileomer, and the kings who were with him, came and defeated the Rephaim, in the Ashtoreth, Keranim, the Zuzim, in Ham, the Im, in Shevet Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Peron, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazazon, Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Ketelair, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Going, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, or tar pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. They probably actually hid in them. Keep reading. Fell into them. And the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Now, if you're like me, this is a bit of a head scratcher, right? Not just in terms of pronunciation, but in terms of placement. Why do we go from the glorious promises of God and the worship of Abram to a bunch of kings battling it out? Why do we get all these powers and peoples and places? And I think the answer is actually borne out in the trajectory of the passage. So in one respect, my answer to the question is just keep reading. It's going to be fine. You'll figure it out. But let's just skip down to uh, Genesis chapter 14, verses 19 and 20. And look at what the priest king of Melchizedek says to Abram. And he blessed him and said to him, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor... Of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now we're gonna unpack these verses a little bit more in detail in just a little bit. But what I want you to see here is how Melchizedek, the king of Salem, characterizes Abram's God and his God. First, he is God most high. Right? There's no ruler higher than this God. Second, God most high is possessor of heaven and earth. Now some translations uh, use creator or maker, but I like possessor. Uh, here's the point I want you to see now. If Abram's God is most high and the possessor of heaven and earth, which is a way of saying he's in charge of everything below, above, everything below, which means everything in between as well. If Abram's God is God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, then he rules over all of these kings, all of these people, all of these places. He's the supreme king he actually overrules all of their attempts to assert themselves as the sovereign king of the earth. And that's actually what Keno was doing. He was trying to say, no, no, my rule is over all of you. These kings who have been under him as subservient subject vassals had rebelled against him. And Keno says, I don't think so. I rule over all this place. And what we're learning is actually the Lord rules over all of it. The Lord is the sovereign king of the earth. He was expressing that through what we're going to see in this passage. Catalea was trying to maintain his rule as the sovereign king of the earth, but that, that throne is occupied by Abram's God. Beloved, Abram's God is our God. He is God most high. He is possessor of heaven and earth. And we need to remember this, not just after an election, but all the time. When the princes and the kings of the earth rattle their sabers, saying that they're the biggest, they're the strongest, they're the mightiest. Well, actually, no. The sovereign God is. He's the king and ruler over all. They can try to jockey for power, but the Lord is the sovereign king. He's working his purposes out. We can worship in the midst of warfare. We can worship and not worry. Now, just as there was a problem between Abram and Lot in chapter 13, now there's a problem because of Lot in chapter 14. Did you you catch what happened to Lot in verse 12? He was captured. Lot and all of his possessions were captured. Abram doesn't ask the faithless question that Cain asked. Am I my brother's keeper? You know, Lot, he, he got himself into this mess. Let's let Lot get himself out of this mess. No. As a faithful man, he will come to the rescue of Lot. And the first audience would have needed, the people of Israel would have needed to hear this as they stood on Mount Sinai and prepared to enter Canaan for conquest and battle. There would have been opportunities to leave their brothers on the battlefield, to leave them. But no, what we're seeing is you come to their rescue. You come to their side. It's going to need courage. You're going to need courage to come to the aid of your brethren, like Abram did. Love not only looks to its own interests, but also to the interests of others, especially your brothers. Look at what Abram does in verses 13 to 16. Read Genesis chapter 14, verses 13 to 16 now. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, The Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. These are the good guys. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hoboth, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions And also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Now we see here that Abram, he launched an amazing and daring rescue, didn't he? And it was difficult. It was a long way away and it took a a long period of time. Against these great kings and their armies, Abram takes 318 of his men. He's risking his his own possessions, his own wealth. Those men who work with him. He divides them and under the cover of dark... They defeat those who held the spoils of war. They defeat those who held Lot and all of his possessions. Now did you notice Moses' interest in possessions there in verse 16? Abram plundered the Egyptians, took a bunch of their possessions as he left, and now he plunders the kings of the earth, taking their possessions as he rescues Lot and his possessions. You see, God Most High is the possessor of heaven and earth. And he has placed the possessions of the earth in Abram's hands. Do you remember what Melchizedek said to him? He said that God delivered Abram's enemies into his hands. This was a victory won by the great king. God has blessed Abram in battle and he has established him as a force to be reckoned with on the earth. Remember when he said to Abram, go and walk throughout the land? Well, that's what kings did in that day, right? They went and they surveyed their land. Abram has been set up now, not only as one who's walked throughout that land, but has all these possessions as as almost a, a king to a certain extent. He's a force to be reckoned with on the earth. And as a result, two kings come to greet Abram. Now, in, a, well, a place where kings meet, in the king's valley. And this is where Abram's loyalty to the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, is tested. Read Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 24 now. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hands to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share." Now these verses are fascinating for a number of reasons. But at the heart of them is a contrast between Abram's response to the king of Sodom and his response to the king of Salem. The the first king, the king of Salem, who comes in the narrative, is a king actually who we've not met before. We didn't read about him in the first 12 verses of the narrative. He wasn't part of that battle in the opening chapters. Here's a righteous king. Do you remember we read from Hebrews chapter uh, uh, 7 earlier? His name means king of righteousness. Here's a righteous king living in a filthy world. And here he is. He's coming. Melchizedek is king of Salem. Or perhaps we should just go ahead and say it, right? Melchizedek, king of Jeru-Salem. That's where he's from. He emerges. He's not just any old king. He's also a priest of God Most High. He's a priest king who's loyal to Yahweh God. He comes to bring refreshment to Abram by means of bread and wine. And he comes... To bring a reminder to Abram. You were victorious, dear Abram, because God delivered your enemies into your hands. Melchizedek, he he ministers to Abram body and soul. And what is Abram's response? In worship, he gives a tithe to the great king of Salem. Now, this is partially where the idea of tithing, uh, giving a tenth of your income to the Lord came from. The New Testament, as we mentioned in our membership course, it doesn't enforce the the Old Testament tithe as a kind of a a barometer for giving. Rather, the the New Testament, its emphasis is that we should give cheerfully, generously, and sacrificially. That said, let me just say that such a principle of a tithe, 10%, is at least a wise one to consider uh, when you think about giving back to your great king. Perhaps it could at least be the starting place for thinking about your own giving back to the Lord who has given to you. I mean, after all, you're giving your earthly authorities at least 15.3% of your paycheck. At least consider what would honor the supreme authority of heaven and earth. The New Testament reading, as you know, that we read from earlier uh, in in the service, picks up on this conversation between Abram and Melchizedek in Hebrews 7. And there, the writer of the Hebrews points out Jesus' uniqueness. He's from the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is a priest king like Melchizedek, being and that is Jesus' is superior, his priesthood is superior to the priesthood of Aaron. And he says, notice that, that Abram pays tithes as the inferior to the superior. So given what we just read about Abram, his single-handed defeat of the kings of the earth, and really holding their possessions in his hands, we might be tempted to think that Abram is the most superior king on the earth, but he's not. That's Melchizedek. And Abram honors him as a messenger from God. He shows his allegiance to Yahweh by paying tithe to this priest king. Beloved, as those who walk in the footsteps of Abram, honor the one who fulfilled this shadowy type of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ is the great king of the heavenly Jerusalem. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. He's worthy of our love And our loyalty. Jesus is like Melchizedek and he's the great priest king who's utterly unique. He was perfectly righteous. Melchizedek was a human, was a sinner and flawed and fallen. But the Lord Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous. He's utterly unique. I mean, who has defeated the terrors of sin and death? Those kingly terrors. The Lord Jesus has. Who has rescued captives from the princes, the prince of the power of the air. The great enemy of the people of God by his death and resurrection. Well, the Lord Jesus has. Who has the power to dole out the blessings of God's kingdom to God's people and invite them to receive the bread and wine? Say, come into the communion with the living God. Only the Lord Jesus. And Jesus is presently reigning. And one day he will come to fulfill his promises, to give his people an eternal kingdom, promised land of heaven. While we wait for that day, we are sorely tempted to give our loyalty away to the peoples and powers of this earth. Notice what happens to Abram immediately after the king of Sodom, or Salem, refreshes him with bread and wine and reminds him that God has given him the victory. Do you see what happens immediately? Immediately after that, he is approached by the king of Sodom, that wicked empire, and he is tempted to align with Sodom. Do you see what the king of Sodom says to Abram there in verse 21? He says, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now, doesn't the king of Sodom know that to the victor go the spoils of war? Apparently not. He claims a right to those possessions and to the people. But he makes himself, if you're so generous, I tell you there's this bargain. Why don't we make this bargain? Let me give you this in return. He offers Abram the possessions. The world always presents loyalty to sin and wickedness as a bargain. But Abram sees right through the ploy of the king of Sodom, doesn't he? He says, I'm not going to take a thread, not a shoelace or a sandal strap, right, of these possessions, these spoils of war. Abram recognizes that the king of Sodom is trying to lay claim to making Abram rich so that Abram will have to owe him in the future. I'll do this for you so that you'll have to do something for me in the future. Sin always does that. It always says, here, take this. Just, Just one bite, just one look, just one lie. But then it's going to demand more later on. Like Abram gave up everything to Lot with his choice of land... Abram gives up everything to the king of Sodom except his men and what they already ate. And do you see his reasoning there in verses 22 and 23? He is loyal to the Lord God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. In fact, when he says he's lifted his hand, you see that phrase there? He's lifted his hand to the Lord in verse 22. He's saying that he swore an oath of allegiance to the Lord. Right? Like placing your hand on the Bible and swearing an oath. That's what, kind of the thing that Abram's saying. I, I've done this. I've, I've made my allegiance. I've sworn an oath. I am loyal to the Lord God. Abram, he lifted up his eyes in faith. He's lifted up his hand in loyalty to the Lord. He's taken it to heart that the Lord is the source of blessing. And he will be loyal to the Lord. Think about what that would have meant for the people of Israel standing about Sinai hearing this passage. As they prepared to go into the battle, take the land. The Lord was going to forbid them from taking certain spoils of war. The Lord was going to forbid them from making alliances with people in the land. And Abram's showing them the way. Hold on to the Lord and do not take anything that displeases him. Don't don't do it. Remain loyal to him. He's going to tell you you can't take some things. Don't take them. There are some things that we cannot take from this world. Not even a thread of them. Beloved, we have a choice. A choice between Salem and Sodom. Between the powers of this world and the God who made the world. I'm struck by how quickly this temptation comes to Abram. After a victory. Has that ever happened to you? You've had victory over some sin. You've said no to some pull of the flesh, and suddenly you're greeted with another temptation. Right? He has just been refreshed by the bread and the cup. He has just been reminded that deliverance and victory have come from God. And yet his loyalty is proven, isn't it? Under this test. Doesn't this happen almost daily with us? beloved, how quickly after you have been refreshed by the bread and the cup on the Lord's Day are you tempted by the powers of the world to give your loyalty away? Beloved, how quickly after you've been reminded of Christ's victory over death and the devil on the Lord's Day are you tempted by the powers of this world to give up your loyalty to Jesus and to serve them instead? What what does the world use to attempt to lure you away? What is it? Is it... uh, is it money, pleasure, sex, sloth, ease, work, career, more education, political power, prestige in the eyes of the world, personal fulfillment, affirmation? What does the world use to attempt you to lure you away and exchange your loyalty to the Lord, the loyalty to the world? How quickly? Are you ready to say like Abram, my loyalty is with the Lord? How quickly are you ready to say to the world, you can have all of its vaunted pleasures? Let us not choose Sodom. Let us always choose Salem. And friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to urge you to choose this day between Sodom and Salem. In fact, I want to urge you to choose Salem. That's the right choice. Sodom is the wrong choice. Choose the king of Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus Christ, the heavenly Jerusalem. If you haven't declared your allegiance to Jesus, to the Most High God, then I want to urge you to imitate Abram today. Like Abram gave treasure to Melchizedek, I want you to give your greatest treasure to King Jesus. Not just 10%, but 100% of yourself to Him. Give your whole life, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your heart and soul, all of it. Friend, like Lot, you have moved away from God. You've moved toward wickedness and sin. You've even committed wickedness and sin. We all have. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news of the Bible is that God sent His one and only most beloved Son. He sent the King of righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and live and walk among us, to live the life that we've not lived, Jesus never moved away from God the Father. He always moved toward Him. He always did His Father's will. He always obeyed God. He obeyed God the Father even unto death. And in His death on the cross, He stood in the place of sinners and bore the wrath of God against our sins for all of those who ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in Him, for all of those who ever declared their allegiance and loyalty to Jesus. Jesus died for those. But He didn't just die. He got up from the dead. Revealing to the world that he is the king of righteousness, and he accepts all of those who would turn from their sin and place their faith in Him. Friend, come to this righteous king. Bow the knee to the Lord Jesus today. Give your loyalty to him. turn from sin and trust in him. Be forgiven. Jesus is given He was given the victory over the terrible reign of sin and death. And he calls you now to come to him, to live your whole life long in service to Him and to one day enter His kingdom, that heavenly country and New Jerusalem. Friend, if you want to give your life to Jesus, come and talk to me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member that you've come here with this morning. There's nothing more important that you can think about than this good news that Jesus offers Himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and bring us into His kingdom. Jesus is worthy of our loyalty. He is Lord He's the possessor of heaven and earth. And so we must look to him and remain loyal to him. And that's what I want us to think about as we conclude. When the world attempts to lure you away and entices you into sin, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Beloved, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to look to the Lord Jesus and remain faithful to Him because like Abram, Jesus has weighed us down with the blessings of salvation. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 reminds us that He is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He has prepared a home for us in that heavenly promised land. Day by day, He rescues us from our sinful foolishness. When we go down to Egypt, or we go too close to Sodom, He sends brothers and sisters to run into our darkness and pull us back into the light. He loves us too much to let us go. Or leave us in those places where sin and wickedness and the temptations of this world threaten to bind us. He sends sweet messages and sometimes sweet messengers to tell us these truths again and again in our lives. That we are invited into communion with the Most High God. Why be loyal to Jesus? Because he loves you. Actually, because he loves you with a loyal love. A love that will not let you go. Loyalty, actually, it doesn't begin with you. It begins with Jesus. Loyal love for Jesus is actually a response to his loyal love for you. We love because he first loved us. Do you realize that about Abram in this passage? God in his covenant-committed, loyal love, promises to bless him with land and lineage. And Abram responds in loving worship to God. God, in his covenant-committed, loyal love, delivers Abram, his enemies, into his hand. And Abram is refreshed and blessed by the king of Salem, a representative of the Most High God. And Abram responds in loyal love. If you want to overcome the allurement of the world then remember the love of your Lord. In love, he sought you and he bought you with his redeeming blood. Lift up your hand to him. Swear allegiance to him because he lifted up his hands and he allowed them to be nailed to the cross in his love for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ, our great King of righteousness, our great King of love, who in love sought us. Father, we pray and ask that you would cause our hearts to grow in love for Him because we behold His love for us. Father, we pray and ask that you would help us to remain loyal to Him and to look to Him until we look on his face. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.